Hi, welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, there have been several elections called during this pandemic, although most Canadians don't want to go to the polls. How do we really feel? The murder case of Christine Jessup has been solved. What more have we learned about Calvin Hooper? Strippers want to strip. Should we be allowing them to do so during a pandemic? And a new study from the Canadian Medical Association is showing us the impact of the first wave of the pandemic on the backlog of diagnostic and surgical procedures. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. For Halloween, I'm sewing a costume out of my many used masks. I'm going out as bad breath. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I don't know if your mother would be happy with that one. Brush your teeth, floss, a little gargling might help uh, with that, son. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the stu- uh, Tuesday edition of the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, Facebook and Twitter, you can send us a note via the website at Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, another jam-packed show today. Let's get to it. Uh, there's been several elections called during this pandemic. We've seen this in, in an interesting poll today saying 47% of Canadians do not want a federal election before uh, 2013, yet for uh, British Columbia, New Brunswick, and then more recently uh, Saskatchewan last night, Scott Moe getting a uh, uh, another nod there for a term. So uh, as much as we don't like or say we don't like elections, they certainly seem to be uh, advantageous for the incumbents that are uh, in these elections. Here's a clip from uh, Premier Scott Moe last night after winning his election. i got to tell you, I'm feeling pretty good tonight. Last week, we had a couple of big honking rallies for a strong Saskatchewan, and tonight we're celebrating a, a big honking election win. Today, most of our economy is open in this province. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the country, and the recovery is well underway in our province. So the ballot question this election was, who do you trust to lead Saskatchewan's economic recovery? In this election, there was a number of voters, many of them in rural constituencies, they used their vote this election to express their frustration with the federal government. And to those voters, I want to say, I hear you. And I want to say this government hears you. We share your frustrations. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe winning an election last night. Again, the incumbent, a big honking win, as he put it. Uh, let's bring in Genevieve Tellier, Professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Genevieve, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you very much, Scott. So are you surprised at the trend we're seeing, considering most Canadians say they don't want an election, yet for these three situations, it certainly was uh, you know, a big win, a big honking win, as Scott Moe put it, for the incumbents. So is this the way to go? Uh, obviously, despite maybe Canadians not wanting an election, if you're an incumbent, you want to get one under your belt if you're looking for a majority. 
that's how I see it, and that's my surprise is I, it's why the federal government doesn't want to go into an election. I'm not sure they don't want to go, uh, but there are many factors I think that they have to consider. Uh, my take on that is that, yes, I do believe genuinely that people don't want to go into an election. Uh, for me, this is not difficult to, to see. However, another dimension that is very important is that I think currently with the pandemic, people prefer stability over change. And so you have what you know already with the government the incumbent who's in place now and unless you really dislike the policies that were put in place over the last month uh, I don't think there is any incentive or desire to go in another way and so if you were to defeat uh, Blaine Higgs I think that would be the best example uh, in, in New Brunswick uh, what's the alternative what's the other option and so that's not clear for voters and I think they do like the leadership of Blaine, uh, Blaine Higgs the same with Scott Moe, the same with John Organ, etc. And even for Justin Trudeau, I would say that I think most of Canadians are pleased with the way that the government has managed the crisis. Of course, there are a few irritants, but overall, people are, are satisfied. So, as I said before, I think it's more this issue of stability, change, that is the ballot question, I think, in those elections. Does it matter, Genevieve, whether it's a planned election, one that we knew that was coming, uh, somebody coming to the end of their term, as opposed to calling a snap election because you have a minority situation and it's a good opportunity to to try for that uh, majority? Does it matter uh, either way to the electorate, whether it's, you know, uh, as this poll says, 47 percent say they want the federal election to go as scheduled 2023? Uh, does it matter whether it's the scheduled time or whether it's a snap election? In general time, I would say that people don't like opportunistic uh, politicians, and so calling a snap election, of course, will be seen as opportunistic. And frankly, John Orvat in BC frankly said uh, when he launched the election, I'm launching the election because I want a clear mandate. I want a majority. That's why I'm doing it. So some people would have been skeptical about that. Uh, so yes, that could play. But then again, we are in, unpre- in unprecedented times. And so the natural inclination of people may not be the key factor for, for the election. So you could say, okay, I don't like that. Uh, I, I don't like this appellation. I don't want to vote. Uh, I, frankly, I don't even like that government in general. But, but, but the management of the crisis was good. And so all the elections that will be taking place in Canada over the next month uh, will be on the pandemic and nothing else. And so that will be the ballot vote, I think. So the longer that we are in COVID-19, and let's be honest, for all intents and purposes, it's going to be at least till the middle of, of next summer or uh, certainly June-ish before anything is available to the public and in, in out in arms and such. Um, so, again, we, we, we still do have a long period of time here. The longer that it goes, meaning that obviously it's going to go through the winter and into the early spring as far as the pandemic's co- uh, concerned, the longer it goes, is it harder for the incumbent? Do those numbers start to dwindle the longer this goes? That would be my sense, so I don't have any proof to back this. But yes, uh, if I look at the, the, the political landscape, I would have the sense that if you see how people now in Ontario, but we see it also in other provinces, how they do question the decision of the government. Uh, so some are saying, uh, no, you should not, uh, yes, you should open more or not, you shouldn't, shouldn't open more. And uh, and at a point, the economy going to take its toll. We're going to see businesses closing and people are going to feel even more insecure about the, the prospect of, of the economy. Um, one thing that 
probably helped uh, John Orvat to win in BC is that he had a key promise, was, which was to give $1,000 to every British Columbian earning less than 125000 per year. So that's a big incentive. And so this says, again, um, how the times are difficult and people are looking for help from the government. So if this help is not there, and so we will wait because uh, for the next month, I think government in all provinces and at the federal level will have to give again some money to people and so if that is not available then people will uh, start to be more frustrated and it's going to be even harder for government to remain as popular as they are currently so for and for me it has always been clear in this pandemic the biggest challenge was not the first wave it, it is a second or maybe the third it's now it's when it is longer in time to keep people um, uh, complying with rules and keep them sensitive to what's happening with the pandemic and not starting to be discouraged by everything that is occurring. So that being said, where does this leave the federal Liberals? We remember, obviously, prorogation of government uh, in the latter part of the summer. Um, Many thought back then there was going to be an illustrious throne speech and a new direction for Canada, and then boom, off we go to uh, an election. Obviously, the tide kind of changed there with the second wave. Perhaps people's attitudes uh, in, in regard to an election obviously changed because COVID-19 is the priority for every every Canadian. So, you know, that window sort of closed quickly. Where are the Liberals right now? What are they thinking now uh, after the win of Scott Moe and what has happened in the other provinces? Does this change things for them federally? Are we going to see them want to go soon? Um, if we were to have this discussion yesterday, I would have said uh, very clearly they want to go into an election. Uh, today, there were also two by-elections yesterday in, in Ontario, and those yep. are uh, important for the Liberal and problematic for the Liberal because they were so, Liberals were supposed to big win and easily in those two ridings in Toronto. And Toronto, urban center, important. This is where Liberals uh, get support, a lot of support. And so the, 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 the election, those two by-elections were very close. Uh, okay, one factor, I think, is because uh, uh, Madame Paul was there, the Green leader uh, was, was on the ballot. I think that kind of explains mm-hmm. one of the results. But then uh, if conservatives are able to do well in by-election, uh, liberals should think why they are doing well. That being said, I still think that it's possible for the federal uh, liberals to go into an election by um, playing well their cards on the pandemic and how they have managed the crisis and how they will continue to manage the crisis. Because voters won't reward past behavior. They will vote for the government. They think will this manage what's coming. And so that's what the liberals should be uh, trying to do. Now, should they call an election? I think they are thinking about that every day. The temptation is very high to do so, uh, given the result in the two provinces that you mentioned. But at the same time, the dynamic at the federal level may be a bit more different than what we see Mm. in each province. So with uh, you brought the two Toronto by-elections, which did go to liberal uh, 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 candidates. However, as you said, uh, it was certainly a lot closer race than it has been in the past. Uh, Justin Trudeau on TV now uh, with a press conference, a news conference uh, in regard to COVID-19 and is obviously very happy of those two wins and and was all smiles about it this morning. So what does what do what does that win say? What does that suggest? 
as far as the federal liberals, even though it was a narrow win, it's still a win. Is it time? Does that does that create even more momentum for this? Uh, yes, I think it's uh, how you see the glass. Is it full or empty, uh, half empty mm. or half full? That, that I think, is uh, how you could see it. Uh, yes, liberals could build momentum. I, what I have seen during the last days is that liberals are very cautious to send a message that if there is an election, it won't be because of them. It would be the opposition yeah. party that will bring them down. And so I think they're fighting a lot for that. Uh, it's the same thing with the committee that was launched yesterday to investigate more COVID-19. Uh, that was a committee in the House of Commons requested by the Conservative and the Bloc Québécois, NDP also. Um, and the Liberal could play that card saying, well, you see, we want to manage, but we have this committee and they are slowing us in what we want to do. And so uh, it's not good for the pandemic. And so let's go back to electors and ask for a clear mandate. Um, so it depends how you see the result of the, the by-election. Yes, you could show it uh, as being two wins, but those are two narrow wins. Uh, and and they, first they show that the conservatives are able to, to, to get some voters, and that's important. Uh, and also they are showing that uh, the Green Party probably has momentum. And so people did not vote for the NDP in 2019, but maybe some will be willing to vote for it the green so liberals that the people that voted liberals instead of ndp may vote for green the green party so that also should be an issue that i think the liberals are, are looking very closely as we mentioned genevieve obviously during times of uncertainty and incumbents if people are happy with them tend to do well rather than voting for a change during a time of uncertainty so obviously with these three provincial elections it's worked in the, in favor of the incumbent but what do you make of uh, the poll uh, out today the Leger poll out that said 47% of Canadians still want the uh, don't want an election before 2023 when it's mm-hmm. you know theoretically could be could be the uh, the end date for this think, uh, what are your thoughts on on that yes i think that the figures were similar in bc just before the election was called um, so yes i i take note of that and i genuinely believe that this poll may be accurate in that the sense, yes, probably half, half of Canadians don't want to go into an election for many reasons. Uh, but if they are forced to go into an election, uh, will they go? So we'll, we'll see the percent, uh, rate participa- participation rate, which was very different from one province to another one. I think it was 60% in, in, in uh, New Brunswick, but only 52% in British Columbia. So there are some variations there also. So will people vote? Um, and if they vote, yes, for me, the ballot question will be, of course, the pandemic and change over stability. You know, you bring up a, a valid point in, in how this is going to play out regionally. Do you think a, a factor will be, and again, uh, obviously, if numbers start to spike up during any sort of an election, it'll be a cause for concern. If they're stable or go down, uh, it'll be pretty smooth sailing. But that being said, we certainly know, uh, you know, the weight that Ontario and Quebec carries during an election. The fact that those are seem to be, at this point, well, are the, the, the two hardest hit uh, provinces. Does that change the skew on how how we look at these two provinces in an election, considering they are the ones that are suffering the most at this point? Since we are already looking at those two provinces, I think it, there's not a lot of change on, uh, for that reason, because they were already important, and this is where the most cases occur, and so we will look even closer to those two provinces. What I've seen, uh, however, that has changed is how the federal government responds to requests coming directly from premier from those two provinces. 
And so uh, it seems that Justin Trudeau is much more sensitive to the request of Doug Ford or François Legault and tries to provide whatever resources that the federal government is able to provide, especially for those two provinces. And so those this goes also to the question of uh, federalism in, in Canada, especially fiscal federalism. And I'm sure if there's an election, a federal election, uh, Doug Ford and François Legault will will step in those in the election and, and ask for more money from the from the federal government. So it will be interesting to see how the federal uh, government responds to to those demands. Uh, Scott Moore, in the clip you just ran, uh, did say that exactly, saying that I have a clear mandate. And of course, the last person being elected, the most recent person being elected, is the one that has the most legitimacy. In, in Canada. So uh, it was Justin Trudeau, now it is Scott Moe and the other premiers. And so the request formulated by premiers will also be important if there's an election, of course. Mm. Even if there's no election, I'm sure that uh, there are intense discussions going on currently. And if we see uh, the cases going up even higher than what we see now, uh, there will be even more pressure from provinces towards the federal government to, to ask the federal government to step in and to act more. Genevieve Tellier has been with us, Professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Genevieve, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We heard uh, a little over a week ago uh, the recent revelations that have come out in regard to the murder of Christine Jessup. And this unsolved cold case has uh, been on the books for years. And uh, surprisingly, or not surprisingly enough, I guess the way it happened is kind of surprising. Uh, DNA uh, has now uh, shown Kelvin Hooper to be the murderer of Christine Jessup. And as soon as that was announced, police have said that uh, lots of tips and information have come in in regard to who Calvin Hooper was and how, obviously, uh, this crime happened and will be continually investigated, continue to best in the investigation in, over, in order to try to put some, uh, uh, some of these questions to rest in regard to the murder of Christine Jessup. Let's bring in Kurt Macon, an uh, innocent Canada co-president and offer of Red Drum the Innocent, the murder of Christine Jessup and the controversial conviction of Guy Paul Moran and is with us now. Kurt, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, uh, nice to be with you. Thanks. What were your thoughts when you first heard this information and it seemed to come out of the blue that there'd been uh, information in regard to the Christine Jessup murder? Well, as you say, on the one hand, a complete bolt out of the blue after 34, 35 years, you start to you know, it just kind of recedes further and further into the background. But at the same time, uh, I and I think many people who had any connection to this uh, thought that this DNA someday is going to reveal who it is. It's a matter of uh, whoever the perpetrator is having his DNA somehow get on a database and be compared to the sample that was on the victim's underwear. And sure enough, it happened. But I mean, it was still, I think, shocking to everybody when we finally had an answer, and not just had an answer, but sort of a very dramatic and unsatisfying or unfulfilling conclusion in that the perpetrator is dead by his own mm-hmm. hand. So there will be no trial. Uh, there will be no criminal charges. There will be no accountability for him. But uh, we can still have accountability for the investigators who missed him all those years. 
Uh, and oddly enough, it was Guy Paul Moran who was obviously cleared through DNA, who who obviously went on to say that that would eventually uh, find the, the the real killer. You talked about the database and, and having DNA, and it's just a case of matching these. Talk a little bit about how that worked and how we did uh, end up circling around to Calvin Hooper. Well, they, they always had this sample, although in another sort of dramatic development, uh, it, ca- it was very old sample, and uh, a lot of it had been used up in previous DNA testing to try and find out whether it matched or excluded uh, Guy Paul. So there was a small bit left. Um, so uh, the great breakthrough was uh, uh, developments in uh, familial uh, or genealogical DNA analysis, which allows uh, police and forensic investigators to compare to somebody who may be a distant relative of the perpetrator you're actually looking for. And so then they can construct sort of a family tree of potential suspects. And if the police go out and uh, see that, well, one of them, for example, is geographically located very close to the crime scene, then you're obviously going to key in on that person. And once they realized that one of these uh, names that had been uh, pointed to, Calvin Hoover, uh, was from that area, but not just that, had been a family friend of the Jessops, well, you pretty much had your answer. So uh, it's, I, I think you, you could fairly call it sort of a cleanup operation now where they're taking in tips and trying to reconstruct uh, who he was and how he, went, you know, how he went about this and how he hid for all those years but uh you know for all intents and purposes we know who it was and the case is nailed shut wow uh so this may not even have been initially from hooper's own dna this could have been or was a family member in that tree that somehow they trace back to him is that accurate well, I, I may have misled you slightly in my wording. Um, the, the DNA that was on Christine's underwear, uh, which was found at the body site where she was murdered, is a, is a very clear match for Calvin Hoover. Right. The way they got to him was because um, of uh, uh, DNA on file from genealogical searches, which are being done, of course, all over the world now, where it led toward him. Um, through his uh, family tree, if I can put it that way. So this could, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here in, in, in what I'm saying, Kirk, but this could have been uh, some distant relative, some relative of Hooper's, who say, for example, went on to one of those services that you see advertising on TV where you can figure out your family tree. So somehow that evidence uh, that DNA from that family was put into that system, and that how they, they, it eventually led to Hooper. Is is there is that accurate? Yes, if my understanding, which is not scientific or experienced, is correct, that is how it happened. And we had a a very notorious case of this about two or three years ago when a serial killer in California was identified the same way um, after being at large for twenty or thirty years. So uh, I think it's pretty clear that we're going to have more and more of this, and anyone hiding out there um, who thinks that they're in the clear uh, because their DNA has not been matched yet has a whole new nightmare to worry about uh, because there's all sorts of ways of coming to them now. This is an absolutely incredible story, isn't it, when you think of it? Because it's not even necessarily the murderer's actions, but information that was obtained from his family tree that led police to him.
It is, and of course, I mean, there's there's nothing about this case that isn't riveting, and which which doesn't uh, really bring all the causes of wrongful convictions uh, into uh, mm. into the into the glaring light. Uh, the Morin case is a is a startling case of errors and uh, you know mistaken apprehensions and tunnel vision and keying on one person. So this is, you know, again, the, the latest development um, is, uh, is another in a procession of just startling events along the way. I mean, this guy was, Hoover, was a family friend, uh, according to Ken and Janet Jessup, uh, the victim's family members. Uh, he and his wife had been to barbecues at their house. They'd socialized. And in fact, uh, Janet, Christine's mom, uh, had called Hoover's wife on the morning of the abduction and told her what her movements were going to be like that day. And that may well or probably did uh, give Hoover, the husband, uh, uh, an opportunity to go up to Queensville knowing no one would be home and abduct Christine. This, of course, is all after the fact reasoning, but that is uh, circumstantially how it looks. So, it raises some very serious questions about why he wasn't investigated enough at the time or since. Wow. Um, obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. What is the family's position now that they know who this is? Uh, does anybody put these pieces together? Well, um, uh, Ken and Janet, uh, uh, Ken and Janet are uh, are sort of one unit. They live close to one another, and they're uh, they're very close. Uh, Bob Jessup, uh, Christine's father, lives uh, distantly, and uh, I don't think they really have any communication nowadays. So there are sort of two camps with different viewpoints on it. I I can't speak for any of them, but I know that what uh, what Ken has said to me and to others, and I believe Janet has said the same, is that they're very, you know, they're perturbed about how this could have happened, and they have a lot of questions uh, as to why Cooper was not, uh, targeted early on for investigation uh, as a suspect. I can't speak for them today. Um, I, my word of mouth uh, through Infants Canada is that they support the call for a review uh, into the police uh, investigations that did not come up with Hoover for all these years. But, you know, I would, I would have to leave that, uh, that for them to say. Um, and uh, as for Bob Jessup, I, I honestly don't know uh, whether he wants that or not. Hmm. Um, how much more have we learned about Calvin Hooper since uh, this discovery? How much more do we know about him? We understand that information has come into police from him. Uh, but anything about him and his death you can tell us? Well, I, I know from a number of reporters that I've been in contact with, um, that, who were out there trying to get that information, that they had been, by and large, very stymied in getting anything. Uh, it's known that he lived in Port Hope. Uh, it's known that he killed himself in 2015. Uh, he, ha- he was married once and then remarried, and his second wife died in 2009, I believe. But that is about all that's known of him. So it's uh, it's an object of great frustration to uh, journalists who've been out there for now about 10 days trying to piece together anything about them, that they're getting nothing. The Hoover family does not want to speak, um, and that's about it. So very, very little is known. 
So we don't know very much, say, say about his state of mind or, or even other crimes that he may have committed. Well, unless I've missed uh, uh, some journalism that's been done in the past uh, 10 days, we know nothing about his state of mind. Uh, we know cl- close to virtually nothing about him, period. Uh, it's just a great big vacuum. So uh, hopefully there will be um, information forthcoming from police in the near future or somebody is going to give some idea of who this man was, whether he could have committed similar crimes, as you say, uh, which police are certainly looking into now, and how he was able to evade capture, given that he was in the family circle um, for so long. Wow. This is, how do you think Canadians or even Ontarians are processing this after this much time, especially those, that, you know, those of us that are old enough to remember this murder? Well, you know, how, how do you speak for so many people? I, I, I guess our own reactions are probably not dissimilar to most people. Um, hmm. it's, another, it's, it's another very troubling turn in a troubling case. And I'm sure that it must cause people to wonder how the system can get so many things wrong. You know, we, our justice system is one of the most evolved uh, that we have. And it's very embarrassing to those who are within the justice system that these kind of wrongful convictions and erroneous investigations take place. But they certainly do. And it's only by looking at them and exposing them to light that we have a chance of preventing them in future. And this case has been a horribly botched case that has hung over the justice system for three and a half decades now. So it certainly behooves us to look closely at how so many mistakes could make. And I might add that at Instance Canada, we have had 25 exonerations in homicide cases, which is horrendous. Those are the ones that we have been able to get to. Hmm. All we can do is homicides because of scant resources. And there are a number more that are in the process, which we quite expect will come to an exoneration within the next few years. So they still occur. They're not some sort of historical anachronism. Wrongful mm. convictions happen. Kirk Macon has been with us, Innocence Canada, co-president and author of Red Rum, The Innocent, The Murder of Christine Jessup, and The Controversial Conviction of Guy Paul Moran. Another chapter, uh, volume in this book, Kurt. you think? <laughs> Um, I guess it remains to be seen. It's certainly a possibility. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well, Kirk. Okay, thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, you might remember that uh, when we were in the earlier stages of COVID-19 and things were slowly starting to close down, I guess quickly starting to close down, uh, one of those that fell victim were strip clubs, strip joints, and, and you know places that are uh, very similar to those. And you know, as we got into stage three, we sort of started to see places like restaurants and such uh, open up and, and try to uh, reestablish some sort of business. Not necessarily the case for this industry. And now, an advocacy group for strippers in the province are wanting a judicial review into the closure of strip clubs due to the pandemic. To talk more about. All of this, Jennifer is with us from WorkSafe, TwerkSafe, and she is with us now. Jennifer, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm Jennifer. So what's WorkSafe, TwerkSafe? Uh, so we are a relatively new peer-to-peer group. Um, 
we focus on providing legal education for exotic dancers in Ontario. Uh, we also have other events such as self-defense training, uh, financial literacy, uh, things of that nature. We help uh, workers feel empowered about their occupational health and safety at the workplaces. And uh, sometimes we hold fun events like movie nights. So give us a, a bit of a report. What's the status of this industry in Ontario? What's happening now? When did this all uh, change for you? And, and when did they start to close things down? Yes, of course. So um, everyone closed down. And then when things were opening up again, uh, there's, we were not consulted prior to the first reopening about uh, what our needs are to protect ourselves, our clients, and the greater community. Um, and as a result of this, when there were two outbreaks at two of the Toronto clubs, um, we feel we've been unfairly targeted. And have you reached out to government on any of this? Uh, does, is anybody willing to listen? Uh, yes. Um, our attorneys have sent uh, the provincial government a letter in mid-October. Uh, we did not receive any answer, and therefore we felt uh, we had no other recourse than to ask for a judicial review of this matter. And um, what that entails is asking the court whether it was fair to only single out strip clubs on, on uh, September 26th, uh, they announced uh, the closure uh, a day before they had planned to close. And once again, the workers were not consulted and um, we were not given any time really to prepare ourselves for a shutdown. This is the week that CERB uh, was being ruled out. Um, the government did not provide strippers or strip clubs with any additional resources um, and they gave us less than a day of planning for a closure. So we are essentially out of work. So what are you at? And and during this time, sorry, during this time, bars and restaurants were still um, allowed to be open and have indoor service for about two weeks. So, so what are you asking? asking what are you asking for here, yeah. Jennifer? And and obviously you think that you haven't been treated fairly as compared to other hospitality industries. That is correct. So, um, so what you're asking for is to be treated the same as, say, a restaurant, something like that. Uh, precisely, we are asking to be treated the same as uh, bars and nightclubs hmm. uh, because we perform many of the same functions. And what we're asking for at the end of the day and the point of this judicial review is that, you know, for 20 years, there's been a a movement growing, uh, a movement to ensure strippers and other sex workers their rights. And we feel that we deserve the same rights as any other Ontario employees. That is all we want. We want to be treated fair and square like everybody else. We feel that this mandatory closure on September uh, 26th was a knee-jerk reaction to a moral panic. And frankly, we feel scapegoated about it. 
you know, this comes from a old preconceived notion that has been proven time and time again by public health experts and epidemiologists. We are not vectors of disease. And in fact, strippers and other sex workers, you know, it's our job to take care of our health, our job, you know, to take care of our clients' health as well by taking care of ours. And had we consulted, we would have told the government these things. So you are convinced that these uh, facilities can operate and function with social distancing and responsibly and such with protocol and still continue? Yes. Yes. Um, what do you say to those that think that, no, that's impossible, like special social distancing, especially social distancing? So, uh, you know, since the, the reopening, uh, we've no longer been given last chances. We have been dancing for clients individually six feet away from them. Mm-hmm. We, you know, at our clubs, there are literally X's on the ground for where we should be standing when we dance. And we are compliant with that. Um, one of the problems also with the closure is that strip clubs are regulated on a municipal level. And we feel that this decision was made based on happenings in Toronto. And it was unfair for uh, the province to shut down the whole province because there were many bars that didn't have any outbreaks, right? Mm. So is anyone listening, Jennifer? Are, they getting, are you getting any traction with this? Well, I, I hope they're going to listen now yeah. that you've had me on the air. Is there, does there, do you feel that the public is saying, well, it's the stripping industry, we don't care, it's not a priority for us? And, you know, that's okay that we're not a priority for people um, in terms of people not wanting to come to the strip club. You know, mm-hmm. we are a priority to ourselves, first of all. And, um, you know, people who come to visit us, they, they enjoy coming to visit and keep coming back. I think the greater issue here is that... You know, sex workers are still stigmatized, Hmm. and the general public maybe find our jobs distasteful somehow and disapprove, but we are operating legally. We are licensed by most cities in which we dance, and your personal opinions should have nothing to do with the denial to work of other sectors. All right, I got to let you go there. An advocacy group for strippers in the province wanting a judicial review into the closure of strip clubs due to the pandemic. Joining us has been Jennifer from WorkSafe, TwerkSafe. Jennifer, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you for having us. Goodbye. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You remember I was uh, working and I got the Halloween decorations up like two weeks in advance. Then we got the pumpkins, and then, you know, if you got the pumpkins, you got to carve them. Well, now the pumpkins are rotting. It's uh, our, our pumpkins on the front step have turned into a biology experiment. Boy, what pretty colors. You really can't see the orange much. More black and red, if you know what I mean. And then the squirrels get in them, right? And they, you know, start eating them from the inside out, and, and now they, they create so much havoc, they go rolling down the steps. So uh, I had to clean the step with a shovel, snow shovel of all things, uh, yesterday. So I don't know. I might have to regauge uh, how early we start these celebrations come next year.
Uh, what else we got? The website. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. We would love to hear from you. All right. A new study from the Canadian Medical Association says that the impact of just the first wave of the pandemic has taken a toll on the backlog of diagnostic and surgical procedures provided in hospitals. We remember when this all happened way back in March. Uh, hospitals uh, shifted everything that they do, uh, everything that they do, and geared it towards COVID nineteen as they prepared for the influx of patients, and that meant ca- uh, canceling a lot of elective surgeries and and other diagnostic uh, diagnostic tests that that would have been done on a normal basis. So, where does that leave us now? How long is it going to take to make up this backlog? Let's bring in Dr. Ann Collins, President Canadian Medical Association, and with us now, Doctor. Thanks for the time. I hope you. You're doing well. Doing great, and thank you for having me. So, how long is the backlog? How how much of uh, of a uh, of the eight ball are you behind here? Because again, we all remember the, there was a problem prior to COVID nineteen. So, let me tell you that this study that we commissioned looked at uh, the six procedures, which together account for nearly 80% of the diagnostic and surgical care provided in hospitals in Canada. And what we found was quite uh, disturbing, really, that in order to return to pre-pandemic wait times, and that wasn't always great for each one of these, it would cost an additional $1.3 billion in funding and to get them back there um, in in about a year. So that's very alarming, um, but also it speaks to the need that we need to start addressing the backlog issue now, or, or things are only going to get worse. And uh, as you mentioned, there was lots of chatter in the medical system over the years about backlogs and wait times anyway, hallway medicine, that sort of thing. So uh, many have said that we were close to crisis levels before the pandemic. Now being pushed into one, we're in a, in a different scenario. You talked about the funding that it's going to take to do this. Do we even have the personnel? Do we have the bodies to do this? That's a great point because this study looked at purely numbers of these six procedures and just six procedures, and we know that those uh, healthcare providers, nurses, uh, physicians that have been caring for people throughout this marathon called the pandemic, we're starting to see um, shortages in staffing and the impact of stress and burnout uh, has been really um, affected many of these individuals. So uh, there are multiple factors here that, that need to be looked at uh, beyond the funding, although it is the funding that we have made an ask for based on, um, on the numbers that have been produced here. So um, how do we fix this? Is, this? is this more money? Is this more facilities? What, where do you start with something like this? Because, again, you want more than a temporary fix here because what we learn here could help to solve some of the issues that, they, that you had prior to COVID-19. Absolutely. So our ask to the federal government has been for a one-time infusion of money to to support uh, a health care and innovation fund. And so that would uh, help kickstart uh, the health care system, address the backlog, 
look at uh, access to primary care, enhance virtual care, which has certainly been helping with access to care and seniors care. But along with that discussion, we need also to be looking at different ways of delivering our health care, engaging in innovative or with innovative thinkers, with innovative ways of delivering care. We, meet, we need to, to modernize, to move away from our 1960s model of care. And so to, to improve, um, wait times would certainly be a, a key target there. Let's remember those people that are on these wait lists are, are Canadians who are, are suffering as a result of these wait times. Well, you talked about six specific procedures. Can you tell us what those are? For sure. Um, coronary artery bypass grafting or heart bypass surgery. Uh, cataracts, so people whose vision are, is impaired because of cataracts. Uh, hip and knee replacements. MRI, uh, and CAT scans. So certainly you can see that with the hip and knee issue, um, that certainly has an impact on people's ability um, to move when they're living with chronic pain. And to be have your vision impaired by a cataract can affect so many aspects of your life, like driving, and certainly affect your um, independence. Does this does this trickle all the way down to right to the doctor's office? And I'm thinking about you know how we were in the midst of this a, a few months ago. No, people maybe missed doctor's appointments, missed dentist appointments. I remember when that window opened, finally going to the dentist. But what about things like medicals and physicals and stuff? How concerned are you that we're, we're perhaps not putting that as a priority now? Because there's obviously more you know there's bigger fish to fry here. Absolutely, and and just to restate this. This study was done to get this conversation started, but you're absolutely right. There are a whole other um, group of uh, services that have been impact. You rightfully mention access to prime, primary care. So as a result of that, um, there have not been the number of immunizations delivered that there would have been for mm. the same period of time. There haven't been the same number of uh, screening tests administered, and there are a whole host of other surgeries and diagnostic um, procedures that have not been done that were not factored into this particular study. That still needs to be studied. So it's so critical that this conversation gets started in a, in a, a collaborative and coordinated way amongst governments to to assure Canadians that their concerns are being uh, addressed. Uh, obviously, COVID-19 has changed literally everything in every aspect of life for everyone, it appears. Um, and obviously, during these times, it's important to be consistent and, and, and follow protocols and get our way through it. That being said, is this not a good time to make those changes in this system that you say was back to the 1960s? Um, when we are doing something that's this this big and of this magnitude, is it not a good time to make those choices, even though I guess in some ways we have to do them out of necessity, for example, online appointments and such? Well, certainly, uh, if there is any silver lining in this pandemic, it has been the explosion, if you will, of the use of virtual care. 
which has made uh, has created great access for uh, physicians and patients to stay connected. That still needs uh, attention in a go-forward fashion so that it's uh, equitable and accessible to all Canadians. Uh, we know there are areas that need increased in broadband. So you're right, it's, a, it's an opportune time to, to make change, to look at change, and to not, um, to not necessarily go back to the way that we did things previously because we know that wasn't always working either. Good point. Dr. Ann Collins has been with us, President Canadian Medical Association. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, and great to be with you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.